meaning happy. Now, I don't know what you think about the Beatitudes. Uh, they might kind of strike you as, uh, you know, syrupy, kind of very nice religious things that maybe someday in the kingdom somewhere uh, people will act like this. Um, I think we're going to see a different side of, of the Beatitudes. It's not a someday in some kingdom somewhere kind of sermon from Jesus. Oswald Chambers says, They sound sweet and pious and wonderfully simple, but they are in reality like spiritual torpedoes. Get that picture. Spiritual torpedoes that burst and explode in the subconscious mind. Torpedoes generally something you don't see coming or gets in there and then explodes, he says. And when the Holy Spirit brings them back to our conscious minds, we realize what startling statements they are. I have to say, I've already found this as I've been studying these for some time. In, in some ways, I think this is the ideal follow-up to the book of Ecclesiastes uh, from a New Testament perspective. But these are not sweet, syrupy sayings that we can take or leave, not when you understand them. So let's give our attention. Uh, we'll read in Matthew 5. Seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's bow together. Lord, to, to think in one sense that there is a torpedo coming toward our hearts is intimidating. It might make us want to put up all kinds of guards or evasive maneuvers in front of you. But Lord, if we need a torpedo in our hearts, will you send it by your Holy Spirit? Will you teach us Apply your word to us, even as we approach your table here in just a few minutes. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I will tell you right up front that this passage is for believers. It's for people who have committed 
their lives to Christ, trusting in Him alone for their eternal life. But I will say this. If you don't find yourself there, and every week we have uh, lots of people here who aren't there, and I'm delighted with that. And I want you to listen. But I want you to caution caution you about these statements. And here's why. You may be saying, okay, I'm going to, you know, I'm not ready to commit to anything, but I'll try to get whatever I can out of these things. And, you know, Jesus was a pretty good guy as far as I can see. And I think I'll try to be like him. Here's the problem. If you only have Jesus as your teacher, you are headed toward despair. It's going to be depressing. Here's why. Because you will hear what he says and you will say, yes, I would be a better person if I do that. I'm going to do it. And you make an effort to do it and you might be successful for a period of time and then you will fail. Because you simply cannot do these things in your own strength. By His example, as much as you want to, even though you may for a period of time. And that leads to despair. To an emptiness. You say, well, I guess it just doesn't work. Well, it's not that His teachings don't work, but Jesus wasn't just a teacher. for these to have an impact on your life. If you're even going to try them, you need Him as your teacher and your Savior. It's both. He is not just a good example for us to follow. Oswald Chambers again, he said this, He came, Jesus came, to make us what he teaches we should be. He came to make us what he teaches that we should be. He doesn't just say, you all do this, get better, do good, and then come to me and maybe I'll let you into my kingdom. He came to change hearts, to save people from themselves, and their sin. Now let's clarify, and I want to tell you, because obviously the word blessed is here. It's not a word we use a whole lot. You know, you might be one of those that's always saying to people you look down on, well, bless her heart, or bless his heart, and and so on. And so we we do use that phrase, but what, what, what does it mean here? What was Jesus saying? If you notice, I called this series The Blessed. It's an identity of really who God's people are. Uh, there are those that have replaced the word blessed with happy. Uh, there was a, a famous preacher, if I said his name, some of you would, a number of you would know him uh, back a couple decades ago. He did a series called The Be Happy Attitudes. Now, he was coming at it from actually just what I just said. He was doing it from a point of view of positive thinking. You do these things and 
and you'll be happier in this life. And as, I, as I've already said, the problem is it doesn't work that way. If you don't have Christ in you already, you try to do those things, and you're not going to be happier. You're going to be more unhappy than you were before. So what does, what does the word blessed mean? Well, it does mean happy, okay? That's a, that's a legitimate translation. It's a, a blissful happiness. Uh, it's translated from the Greek. That's what it means. But it's not what typically we think of as being happy. It's not because of outward circumstances. It's not a happiness like life gives and takes away. Last night, somebody said to me this. Um, who won the football games today? I said, oh, well, Clemson won. USC won. And, uh, of course, Georgia Tech won big. And the statement came back to me, oh, well, everyone should be happy in church tomorrow then. And I thought about that, and I thought, hmm, you know, there's some truth to that. Do you ever find yourself, you know, when your team doesn't win on Saturday, you come to church all kind of frumpy, and you, you know, you're kind of irritated, and you say, oh, well, we'll get through it, you know, maybe there's next year, and all that. When we come to worship the living God, really? Should God's people let that be the case? And yet, that's the nature of happiness that this is not. It's not the outward that, as I said, life will give and life will take away from you. It is a deep, abiding, regardless of circumstance, happiness that is untouchable once it's there. Can there be outward sadness because of circumstances? Absolutely. We face those things absolutely in this life. We're not being unrealistic. But it's not something that we get. It's not something we achieve. Blessedness is something that God gives. Now, in Jesus' day, he was speaking to people that were trying religiously to achieve happiness. You had the Pharisees. Uh, they believed that happiness was found in tradition, in legalism. They wouldn't have called it legalism, but obeying the law. They were proud. They were self-centered. They sought happiness, blessedness in that way. Uh, you had the Sadducees, another sect. And they sought it in more of a modernism. They got rid of things like the resurrection, as, as one of my professors said. That's why they're sad, you see. It's a way to remember that. But they got rid of that. It was a, a, a liberal view of religion. And then there were the Essenes. And they sought separation from the world. We can't touch the world or let the world touch us. Maybe that will make us happy. And then there were the zealots. Political revolution. Overthrowing Rome. 
That'll make us happy. You know, we've got all those today. We have all of those represented uh, in religious cloak today. There are the, the legalists. There are the traditionalists. Not that tradition is bad, but being a traditionalist, that's not where fulfillment is. There are the modernists. Let's throw away everything that was there before and make it look completely different and new, and then we'll be happy. Even losing things like sin and repentance and resurrection and so on. Those that want to separate from the world and there are modern-day zealots with a strange blend of, of politics and religion. And they're on both ends of the spectrum, the left and the right. Now, each of these have a kernel of, of good things, but none of them are what he was talking about, what Jesus was talking about. It's a difference from the world. It's not an outward thing, it's inward. Now, I say all that to point out why Jesus' message was so radical. It wasn't radical because it was impossible but it was radical because it was so different than what his world was teaching in that day and what, what we see in our world as well. And so we come to the first one. Being poor in spirit. First of all, let me, uh, what poor, being poor in spirit is not about material poverty. Uh, there have been those that have, have thought, well, okay, I'll be poor in spirit and I'll give away everything. That didn't make them happy. You know what? There are people that have lots, that have this inward happiness, and there are people that have given away everything and they're finding an emptiness, just like we saw in Ecclesiastes. You know, it's not these outward things that are the answer. Others have taken this to mean, oh, I, you know, I, I, it's about a low self-image. It's a, a depressive thing, being poor in spirit, a low self-esteem, introversion. Now, again, you can, you can possess that characteristic and be nowhere near what Jesus was talking about. So what did he mean in being poor in spirit? I'm going to illustrate it from three passages very quickly because we're moving to the Lord's table. But there may be, not be any, anything that could better prepare us to come to the Lord's table. The first is, uh, we'll look at a, a parable, a doctrine, and a prophecy. Uh, in the parable of the prodigal son. I won't even go into the whole story, but what you know is the son wanted his inheritance. He went away, took his inheritance, he squandered it, and then he realized he wasn't happy from all of this stuff that he had had, and, and he squandered it, and he decided, I want to go back to my father and my father's house. And here's what it says. When he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I'll arise and go to my father, and I'll say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven, and before you I'm no longer worthy to be called your son Treat me as one of your hired servants. You see, he was, he was wanting to go back, and he said, I won't even try to be a son again. I, I messed that up. 
I will just be a servant, but it'll be better than where I am right now. Now you might say, well, okay, that's fine for the prodigal son, but he did bad stuff. How's that compare to me? <laughs> you know, I'm not like that prodigal son. Although some of you may say, well, I'm the prodigal son. But there's probably any number of you that are saying, well, I'm not the prodigal son. Okay, well, if you think you're better than the prodigal son, that makes you the elder son, and he was in more trouble than the prodigal son. Because he thought he had it together. And that's a problem. And when we think we're there, that actually disqualifies us from being there. You see, we will see over and over again that in the kingdom, things are turned upside down. It's different than we're normally taught. It's different than the world we live in. So here he comes. He's, he's coming back spiritually bankrupt. A teaching portion. Romans 3. We read portions earlier. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Everything we do that we think will earn us favor with God simply puts more distance between us and God. That's radically different than what we would think. We would think, well, the more good things I do, the closer I get to God. But when you're thinking that way, you're thinking you got it within yourself to reach God. And the Scripture says we don't. That's how far away we are. So if you think you're earning your way to God, you're in trouble because you're going the other direction. In Revelation 3, in the prophecy, he gives this warning. This is how serious it is. For you say, I'm rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. Not realizing that you're wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. You see what he's saying to those who think they're self-sufficient, that those who think that they've achieved something big? He said, you think you, you've, you've got it together, you've got it going on, you know what you got? Nothing. You're blind and naked, wretched, pitiable, poor. That's what you got. The one who's in the state of spiritual pride is in danger of what God said right before that statement, which is this. I know your works. You're neither hot nor cold. Would that you were either hot or cold, so because you're lukewarm and neither hot or cold, I'll spit you out of my mouth. See, that's the danger. If you're all about striving to be something in him. But it doesn't have to be so. Look at what he says. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Here is another irony of the kingdom, where the kingdom way is upside down or right side up, however you want to say it. If you want to inherit the most important thing, the kingdom, then be poor. Not poor in material possessions, poor in spirit. 
It's your only hope. Now, how? Everything in our world teaches us how to be rich, how to build oneself up, how to, how to get ahead. That's why this is so radical. You want to be in, in, in tune and tune your heart to Jesus. This is where he is. Step one is being poor in spirit. And knowing this, you can't obey enough, but he obeyed perfectly. You can't atone for your sins. You can't pay for your sins. He did that on the cross. At every point, when you were naked and sinful and hopeless and helpless, he is there and he has achieved that which we cannot achieve. He pays for it. And it's his life in ours, in our place. So it's about relationship with him. We will come back to that again and again. It's not about following some great example. And so today we are going to come to what I'm calling the table of the poor in spirit, just for today. Because that's the right attitude to come. Remember I told you about the prodigal son who was ready to come back to his father and grovel just to be a servant? He didn't get a chance to. See, it's not about groveling. Because what happened is, when the prodigal son came to his senses and he started going back to, the, to his father, he didn't get a chance to beg him to be a servant because the father ran out to him and met him on the way and he said to the servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate for this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now that's not just a story. It is a parable. But here's where it fits with us. For those who are poor in spirit. For those who know there is nothing in my hands that I can bring. Only to the cross I can cling. I have nothing to add to my own salvation. The Father is running to you and saying, come to my table. Here I will feed you. I will clothe you. I will give you blessedness. Here's how he said it. On the night he was betrayed, bread was taken. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And then, just like I started this sermon where I said this passage is for believers, I'm glad you know, if you're not a believer, you're here. He says that about the table, too. Here's how he puts it. Whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of, 
uh, concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. So what he's saying is that um, this table is for my children because I went, I went to the cross for them. And so if you're not my child, watch what goes on here. Observe, but don't make fun of it by pretending like you're one of my children because judgment will come to you if you do. Now, he's being gracious there. He's not being ugly. He's protecting us and protecting you from something much worse than letting the tray go by this Sunday. And so we are to examine ourselves as we've done through, uh, through our worship service. And even as the trays are coming, I, I encourage you to continue to do that. If you're not in him, I trust that you will be soon. Ask him to be your Lord and Savior. But just let the tray go by. Nobody will uh, look down on you for that. It's not uncommon here for that to take place. But for you who are his children, who are trusting in him alone for your eternal life, rejoice in this and know that there is nothing that you can add to your salvation. Even taking this won't add to it. This is a gift from him. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. And we do pray now that you would take these elements, this bread, this fruit of the vine, and use them in a very special way. We can, we can eat and drink these things anytime. We can eat and drink a whole lot more than we will have today. But we're asking you to spiritually nourish us. We pray in Jesus' name.